Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. The Americas were declared polio-free in 1994. That was until recently. Today, I'm here with Dr. Bruce Tarrant, a pediatric hematologist-oncologist with Hackensack Meridian's Children's Health, to talk about why polio is on the rise again after 28 years. So thank you for being with us today, Dr. Tarrant. Thank you for inviting me. And before we start diving into polio and all things about polio, I wanted to talk to you about what brought you to this specific career. What made you become a pediatrician? Well, in general, um, I was interested in science and medicine and working with people. And um, I did have the experience. My father uh, was an obstetrician gynecologist in Brooklyn, where I grew up, and uh, found it very exciting. But I, I wasn't quite interested in the hours that he was. And, and to some extent, in medicine, I saw children as rather innocent in terms of not creating their own problems. They generally don't smoke, and, and I saw that as more of a challenge in the adult field where, you know, it, it wasn't quite the same. And, and um, in college, I volunteered in the hospital uh, where the school I worked, and I found it exciting to try to help keep kids healthy and handle the problems they encounter. Very cool. So diving into polio, where do we start? What are, <laughs> we can start at the beginning if you want, <laughs> and I'll tell you a little bit about that because um, I joined a practice some time ago, but the people who I joined were around when polio was the scourge that it was. And um, interestingly, um, uh, the practice I joined with Dr. Matthew Feldman, Bernie Etra, Don Schiffman, they were working in the 50s when the vaccines were first being introduced, actually in the late 50s, early 60s, and there was a salt vaccine was the first one. That was the injectable one that we do use today. Uh, and actually, they were offered the vaccine to give to their children before it was made public. And they said, if it's not good enough for the public, then you know why should we step in and, and take it? It's not right. And it was a good thing they hadn't, in fact, because actually the initial ones were contaminated with a, a different virus, a monkey virus, that would have been a problem. Anyway, the vaccine came out and was very successful. When I got the vaccine first, myself growing up, they started with the Sabin vaccine, which is the oral vaccine. And that's critical now to our discussion of this issue with polio resurfacing. Um, interesting as well, Salk and Sabin, you could say were sort of bitter enemies. They didn't like each other. They were both brilliant scientists and came up with vaccines that have really saved people's, millions of people's lives as well as their health. Um, but they had a different perspective. Salk thought his vaccine was the better one, and Sabin thought his was. And for different reasons, um, they were uh, both very effective vaccines in use. We did stop using the Sabin vaccine in this country um, some time ago because of the issue of its transmissibility as a live vaccine to people who are immunocompromised. So it decided we were only going to give the kill the vaccine, which doesn't cause that problem. But the oral vaccine, Sabin's vaccine um, was much more readily useful around the world because it was easier to give. Just a couple of drops in a child's mouth, a couple of doses over time, 
um, would effectively make them immune. Um, and so that was much easier than giving many, many people shots. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it started out and, and went along. Um, as another side, whether or not it's of interest to people, my wife actually met Dr. Sabin. She worked uh, for the New York Academy of Sciences, Medicine and the Sciences, and, and their journal uh, had an article by Dr. Sabin, and she actually met him when he was reviewing wow. his article. So that was something. He was around for a good long time. Um, both very interesting people, you know, and, uh, and again, remarkable in, in the feat that they accomplished in this early vaccine. Um, but that's where it started. Uh, to get into the problem we have now, again, uh, polio is only carried by human beings. It's similar in that sense to smallpox. If we could eradicate it entirely from the human population, we wouldn't have to deal with it. And as you said, it was felt to have been eradicated in the United States, and there were only a few countries left that we seemed to have to work on. And a large country with a large population like India was able to pretty much eradicate it as well using the Sabin vaccine, that live vaccine. Um, but because there's still a few countries around, it's still being given uh, the live vaccine around the world. Um, what evolved was a mutation of the uh, live virus uh, to be actually not just transmissible from people who've gotten the vaccine, but actually can cause uh, the uh, issues that we have with polio as it was before with paralysis and in rare circumstances death. Um, so you were mentioning paralysis, things like that. What are some other symptoms of polio? So polio is an enterovirus. It means it gets into our system through oral fecal means, through um, contaminated water supply, and, and children then you know, always have their hands in their mouth. Um, so it's an um, orally acquired virus. That's why it's called an enterovirus, going through the, the gut. Um, and it can cause symptoms that are similar to other enterovirus we have. It can cause gastrointestinal symptoms, um, but the one that you're really worried about in this case that occurred in New York, where the gentleman um, first had what was seen to be a simple uh, viral enteritis, um, then developed into paralysis of his legs, and the recognition that this was polio, so sent off to special laboratories. And then people started looking, as you're saying, you know, now we look at our water supply and, and our sewage and we find the virus there. And so it actually is more widespread than we had suspected. Though fortunately, it does not cause disease frequently. Most people who actually get polio don't get very sick. And it's something that we hope we can really isolate at this juncture and keep from spreading, but that's gonna be a challenge. Absolutely, so you mentioned some of the causes being water sources, things like that. Any other causes? Um, in terms of a source, it really is just that. Uh, you can make the analogy to hepatitis, where there are several forms of hepatitis that are serologically acquired, where you get a transfusion or, or get stuck with a needle. That's, but there's a form of hepatitis, hepatitis A, which is orally acquired. Mm-hmm. And all these orally acquired things, again, can cause those symptoms of, of gastrointestinal distress. Um, But polio is unique in the sense that it was the most common cause of that. There are other enteroviruses, and now we recognize that can affect the central nervous system as well, and and one which we see and we don't generally worry about 
now um, is uh, viruses that are orally acquired and in rare circumstance can cause, you know, symptoms that infect the central nervous system. But polio is the one, you know, people, it goes back in generations, the dog days of summer, mm -hmm. people were very afraid to let their kids out during the summer because if they went swimming and they were in a swimming pool and the virus was present in other children, it could be transmitted that way. Not so now, we recognize that's not occurring now. And this gentleman who acquired the virus was not immunized. Most people who are immunized, and really it's the vast majority of people who can acquire this virus from the vaccine's mutated strain are not immunized. So if you wanna protect your family and your children from this occurrence now where we're seeing that the virus is harder to get rid of than we thought, if we immunize all our children, they'll be protected. And unfortunately, there are areas of the United States where immunizations are not as uh, accepted as we'd like. It's a very safe vaccine. I've never seen, you know, I talk about vaccines causing even fevers. You generally don't see a fever with a polio vaccine. So it's a very safe vaccine. And in fact, the vaccine has now been given, we used to have to give individual doses of each vaccine. So a child would have to get several shots to get their vaccines acquired. Now the vaccines are combined into one injection. So we can give the vaccine against whooping cough and tetanus and diphtheria along with the polio vaccine and the vaccine against Haemophilus, this very serious bacteria that causes meningitis, um, all in one shot. Is that okay though in a little baby? Because I know a lot of these vaccines you get introduced to when you're what, like a year old? Well, younger than that, we start the vaccines earlier, starting at two months of age. And I know that's a concern for people that are giving multiple doses of, um, in a vaccine. Uh, but in fact, when we were giving the diphtheria, the vaccine, the tetanus and pertussis vaccine earlier on, we used to have more fevers because it was just taking the organism itself and sort of grinding it up in such a way that it mm -hmm. gave the immunity to the people getting the vaccine, but it had many, many different antigens. So when we were doing that, at the time that I was growing up and the time that we were giving this even 20 years ago, we were giving many more strains of, a, you know, of these organisms. Mm -hmm. So now we've refined it so we just give the particular coating of these organisms. And so it's many fewer antigens we're exposing the children to. So the way things have been refined, we're giving less of an antigenic load by giving these doses of five different organisms together than we were before. So it's actually safer, wow. we feel. We don't see, you know, we used to see children getting high fevers with some of the vaccines decades ago, and they could have a febrile seizure, which is harmless. We're not saying that's dangerous to do, but it was worrisome to see your child develop high fevers. Oh, yeah. And these vaccines we give now are refined so they don't. Wow. That's very interesting. So... I have a lot of questions, obviously. In terms of treatment, how would you go about treating polio? There isn't a very good treatment for polio. I don't know if people remember some of these older movies that, that were very popular. I'm sure the generations now may not. But um, there was one where a child developed it, and they just showed child having to be put in an iron lung, is what you used to call it, mm -hmm. to breathe for the child. And if, if the infection goes so far as to affect the respiratory centers, then you have to have a child being 
ventilated by a machine. So it's supportive care is what we say. We don't have a good uh, effective treatment against the virus itself. So it's really all about prevention in the first Absolutely. place. Absolutely. The vaccine is the best way to handle this virus, and it's a preventative way. Do you think now that polio is becoming more and more in today's media, I mean, you, you just told us about how it's in today's paper, do you think that maybe a booster for this vaccine might be necessary for some people? It, it may be helpful. Certainly if someone's not been immunized, they need to get the immunization and then boost it as well. But people call me now about their children. Is it safe for me to have the child go out? Your child's had the full series of the polio vaccine, got the last dose after four years of age. They're protected. They have immunity. We're not recommending immunizing all the children again with a booster. It doesn't seem to be necessary. So it seems to be mostly the people that are affected to be not immune. Correct. The vast majority of anybody who gets polio from um, exposure to the wild strain, which is not very prevalent now. Again, I said just to, to, to free countries around the world. Um, the uh, vaccine strain is causing more now, but we've only had 200 cases in the entire world this year so far. And um, so it's unlikely that you necessarily get exposed, but the risk is there now, as we see mm -hmm. in communities that don't have as much of a percentage of immunization against these um, organisms, which we have, and this is in the case of polio, but the other immunizations are critical too. I know the COVID you know, epidemic created a lot of skepticism as well. And I understand that people were feeling this is a new vaccine, it was handled differently. Not entirely new, SARS is something that's been around and the vaccine technology was developed years ago for that. So we recommend that our patients get that COVID vaccine as well. But we understand the concern that people have, but it shouldn't be, you know, thrown over to the vaccines that we use now for decades safely. And that we know save lives, preventing serious disease. Absolutely. As is apparent now with polio. And I, I feel like my question really is, so I wonder if this person, did they know they weren't immunized? Immune, yeah, immunized. Immune, immunized. Yes, yes. Because it probably happened, they probably got the vaccine so long ago that I, I mean, I assume I've gotten the vaccine. Well, this was a young gentleman, and he knew his immunization record, and it was known immediately when he was sick. The first thing you do when you find polio in an individual is say, what's your immunization record? He had not been immunized. Okay. Because I feel like maybe some people don't know if they've been Vaccinated, not vaccinated, it happened so long ago, they probably don't even remember. Yeah. Well, one thing that uh, has been uh, fortunate in certainly our area, schools require the immunization to attend school. Mm -hmm. So if you don't show up at school with your immunization card fully, you know, uh, evident that you've been immunized, the school will say, I'm sorry. You don't come to school until you go back to your doctor and get the vaccine. There are some areas where that's not necessarily true, and some private schools that may try to not enforce that. And that's unfortunate, so I know generally that the children that I treat, and in my general practice as well, they're being immunized properly, and they need the immunizations to enter school.
Yeah, and it's, I mean, prevention is the treatment. Like, it just right. makes sense. Right. No, I mean, in general, in pediatrics, that's one thing you asked me about why I went. In pediatrics, our approach is preventing a problem is much better than waiting for the uh, ill effects and then trying to treat it. It goes back to having kids in seat, you know, belts and in their car seats. I, when I had started, this dates me a little bit, started in medicine, um, car seats weren't required for children. And I knew of cases that were very unfortunate where children were injured. And now we hardly see that. I don't know anybody, anybody who has skepticism about anything who doesn't put their <laughs> baby and their toddler in a car seat. Right. It is also makes driving the car much easier too. <laughs> Kids aren't all over the car. So uh, yeah, I think you know, in, in medicine in general, but in pediatrics especially, prevention is so much more effective and so much happier to see than waiting to have to try to treat an illness that you knew you could prevent. Yes, and that goes for, I feel like, so many. I do have another question, and I know it's very controversial. So I wanted to talk about vaccines and their link to autism or their lack thereof. Right. So that was a real difficult problem we had now, not so much recently, because the people who were pointing to the vaccines were pointing to a preservative, because at one time we had multiple doses of a vaccine in one vial, so you had to prevent transmission of infection with the injection. And so a preservative was put in, and it had a trace of mercury. Not enough mercury to cause any problem, but people pointed to that and said, there, that's linked to autism. So though it wasn't shown that there was a correlation, um, the response was, all vaccines now are single dose. So there is no preservative. There is no trace of mercury, even in the vaccines that we give now. So the polio vaccine we give now, the DPT vaccine against the theory pertussis tendons, the hemophilus vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccines, they're all single dose. There's no preservative. So we just wanted to remove that thought from people's mind. So in fact, the incidence of autism seemed to increase, at least our recognition of it and our diagnosis of it increased, even after we removed the thimerosal. So that seemed to show too that there wasn't, that wasn't the cause, there was no connection. And so we've pretty much been able to establish that. The measles and mumps rubella vaccine was another one that created a lot of problems in that regard. It's given after year of age, but it's given at a time that people sometimes recognize the diagnosis of autism. So people started pointing to that. And there was a physician from England who made a big issue about that, published an article in Lancet, and for the first time Lancet removed the article and actually disclaimed the article because his data was actually falsified. Wow. But even that, you know, people still are concerned about that vaccine. It's not. We have demonstrated time and time with studies that there is no connection between immunizations and autism. Good. So there should be no reason for you not to get not your child vaccinated against polio and all these other measles and mumps and tetanus and all yeah. those things. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? Um, well, I think people should talk to their pediatricians, discuss the issues and the concerns they have. Um, but recognize that these vaccines are safe and effective. People have heard that term time and again, um, uh, and feel comfortable protecting their children from these serious infections. When I started in practice, Haemophilus and 
it's funny, he has a term, hemophilus influenza type B, or HIB, as in boy, um, caused meningitis in 20,000 children a year under five years of age in just the United States. Okay. There was other serious infections, pneumonia, something called epiglottitis, and now we don't see it because that vaccine has been so effective. Again, it's a vaccine that um, it's unlike polio. It's a germ that's around us. We can't escape it. Um, it'll always be a challenge to prevent that bacterium from causing serious infections. Um, but polio, if we can get everyone immunized around the world, we hopefully can stop worrying about it. But the issue was too that people are saying, and even the people who are proponents of the vaccine for polio, are suggesting that we start giving the killed polio vaccine and not the live one, so we don't have to worry about this live strain causing any issues. Um, and I think that's what's gonna be done. That's what's been done, as say, in the United States since 1988, we've, we've started doing that. There are articles that mention that the live vaccine started being given in 1988. It was given well before that. We stopped it here in the United States. I'm not sure it was actually 1998 that was stopped, but we've stopped it over the last decades. We've been used to kill polio, so we don't have to learn about the live one. But the live one is still being given elsewhere around the world, and so giving the polio vaccine is still the most effective way of ensuring that your child would not counter that serious issue of a paralytic disease. And I just want to confirm, as long as we've been vaccinated, we shouldn't have to worry about this rise. Right, right. We never say never in medicine, and the vast majority of people who acquire polio from the polio vaccine strain that can mutate are not immunized. Rare, rare circumstances, anyone who's been immunized get it. So I, I, I want to, you know, speak truth to the facts. Yeah. I don't want to say you can never, ever possibly get it if you've been immunized, um, but it's so extremely rare, and it's not happening here in the United States. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Oh, thank Tarrant. you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.